this is, as uh, you heard, the beginning of a, a little short series of messages that I'd like to share with you. And, and let me be very blunt with you as, as your new pastor. It's just kind of my goal to establish certain uh, values, you know, to just kind of say, well, if you're kind of wondering what my shtick is for the next 20 years, it's probably going to be based on some of the things I've already shared and some of the things I'm going to be sharing with you. And uh, I had alluded to the fact back in those early days uh, when I first was coming around and in that first Sunday that I was with you that I am a real uh, adherent to the Wesleyan way of doing things. Now, uh, for the sake of those who might not understand what I mean by that, it isn't to suggest that there's anything that supersedes the Christian way of doing things. Uh, I am a Christian, I am a follower of Jesus Christ, a disciple of Christ, but Wesley, he was a guy who lived in an age that was not all that different from the age we live in now, where we're pretty irreligious society, where, where church and religion are more irrelevant to people than anything else, and those who are uh, committed to church and religion a lot of times are not really living as though it makes that much of a difference in their lives. And uh, so one of the things that Wesley did is to establish certain expectations of people so they might know how a Christian is different from the other people around them. Now our Methodist tradition, our United Methodist tradition starts with the two brothers, John and Charles Wesley, and for a while, even with their friend, George Whitefield. Now in time, they would separate because of some theological differences of opinion, but Whitefield taught these, uh, these stodgy Londoners how to get out of the church building and into the streets to the, where the people lived and worked. They, they had, uh, like many of us, just expected people to show up for church on Sunday morning if they wanted to learn about Jesus and salvation and hope. And Whitefield taught them that uh, people don't just show up, especially if your church seems a little cold and unwelcoming. So you've got to go where they are. And that still works to this day. And so the Wesley brothers made their mission field, the streets and fields and workplaces around their church. And they just kept going until they'd covered much of Ireland and Great Britain. And uh, this Wesleyan movement became uh, so profound that it extended to the United States in the early days of our colonies. And it became the very foundation of this church. This church's ancient history I understand there was a gap, but the, uh, the first Shiloh church was established by Peter Cartwright, who was a second or maybe third generation, I think he was a second generation preacher from the originals who founded the Wesleyan Methodist movement in the new colonies. And so uh, Peter Cartwright traveled along the Ohio River and established from Kentucky up along the Ohio River, well into Illinois in the southern parts, churches just like these. And, uh, you know, I, I, as an aside, I got to tell you, I came home in so many ways when we came here. My first church appointment in Lanesville, Indiana, which is down near uh, Corridon and New Albany, uh, was a Peter Cartwright church. And so I'm back in a Cartwright church. That just seems kind of interesting and fun for me. But Wesley made something that was transferable in that he took fundamental Christian doctrine, and he simplified it into easily learned terms. 
people wanted to know what the marks of a Methodist were, or what more specifically the marks of a good Christian were. And Wesley had uh, quite, he was quite an egghead, really. He was very well educated and incredibly intelligent, but he also had the capacity to take his vast knowledge and reduce it down to working knowledge for working class people, illiterate people, people who needed just really simple understandings. And he didn't just ask people to understand, he asked them to implement what they understood. So he created environments where people could practice together. And in that regard, what we have in Sunday school, for example, is what Wesley would have approved of. Because when you go to church on Sunday morning and the pastor preaches an inspiring message and the songs inspire your souls and the prayers uh, connect you with God, if you leave and take it into the streets, you're liable to get thwarted almost immediately by a very worldly culture that doesn't care. Whereas if you will take what you've learned and apply it in a controlled setting like your Sunday school class, like your small groups, and Wesley called these bands and classes and things like that. Different terms, same general principle. In other words, if church becomes your learning center as well as your worship center, then you can practice your faith. So I've said for years that every family member should practice their faith in their home. I mean, if your kids and your spouse can't tell that Christ has made a difference in you, then nobody else is going to be able to tell. And if you want to practice being a functional Christian in a world that is hostile to Christianity, then there's no better place to practice than here in this church community. Coming to things like the Family Fun Day, for example, to practice being in community with other Christians strengthens you in your ability to live it in your workplace and in a world where you have some people who believe as you believe, some people who say they believe as you believe but don't practice it, and a whole lot of people that think what you're doing is irrelevant and boring and probably not even built on anything true. Now, this is the nature of things these days. It may be a little less uh, epidemic in Du Bois County, but the truth is, is around our community and our country, it's becoming a very secular world, and it's creeping into the life of the church. This is why Wesley, who was experiencing the exact same thing in his England that he lived in in the 1700s, gave us some foundational rules to live by. He understood that being accountable was easier if you could simplify it to something that one person could ask another. And so he came up with this three simple rules, and those are right out of our book of discipline, and they date from the very earliest disciplines that Wesley wrote for the Methodists that he established. The rules that you heard a moment ago from Becky, do no harm, do good, Stay in love with God. And today and for the next two weeks, we're going to talk about each of those. And you might be surprised that there's so much to say, <coughs> excuse me, about a simple phrase like do no harm, do good, stay in love with God. But there's fundamental scriptural truth in this. 
You heard it described in the passage that Paul read for you, and we're going to come back to that passage in a moment. But just think of the words that Jesus said when he was asked, what are the most important commandments, Jesus? And he said, first, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So as you heard in the children's sermon, to love God and to love your neighbor are one and the same. And therefore, to do harm to another person is to do harm to God. It's really that simple. Remember when Jesus said in that, uh, when I was growing up in Catholic church, we had that wonderful song we would sing, whatsoever you do to the least of my brothers, that you do unto me. And in the same way, whatever you fail to do, in a way, you have failed for me in that case. So when we talk about doing no harm, what are we talking about? We're going to flesh that out for the next few minutes. To do no harm. What does that mean? Well, there are physicians in our congregation, and there are many of us who watch doctor procedural shows on TV, and most of us know, either through our culture or through our realities, uh, through our TV culture and our realities that, that doctors take an oath to do no harm. First of all, do no harm. Uh, primum non no care. Did I say that right? I hope so. First, do no harm. And what it really means is, is that the first priority for a physician is to not make things worse. The, the first priority is don't make it worse. And the dictionary describes harm as physical injury, especially that which is deliberately inflicted. Subsequently, it also states that if it has an adverse effect on someone, it's harm. So it could be said then that harm is basically a process of intentionally hurting someone or at least doing something to them that has an adverse effect on them. And so by definition, to harm someone is a moral problem, or as I've been saying over the last few weeks, a spiritual problem. In other words, we're not talking about something physical, tangible, immeasurable, but something that is spiritual in nature. It's about something that can't be measured. And so that's the general nature of harm. But the dictionary falls short, in my opinion, because it doesn't account for the fact that sometimes we cause harm through our ignorance, through our accidents, through our uh, in lack of consideration, shall we say. And frankly, the process of harming another person then can be as little as simply neglecting in a way that leads to another person's harm or even a harm to something in creation, that is, those things that God has made. And it could even be the result of some mean-spirited, joyful, gleeful attempt to cause another person harm. And honestly, I've seen it all. In fact, I can't lie, I've seen it in church more than I care to acknowledge. I've seen how we harm one another in church through thoughtlessness, 
and a lack of consideration. I've seen how we harm one another by putting our self-interests ahead of a greater good. And I regret to say I've even seen some real mean-spiritedness in churches. I've seen even people who take some joy and delight in harming others. And it grieves me deeply. I know Wesley must have seen it too, which is probably why he started with this rule. Keep in mind that John Wesley was a guy who considered himself a card-carrying, anointed, ordained Anglican priest, and his Anglican church would have nothing to do with him because he breached so many of their social protocols. He dared to do something so vulgar as to preach in the streets the good news of Jesus Christ to lowly people of no repute. And so the church disowned him, even paid crowds to stone him and heckle him as he preached. Now, I'm sorry, but in the name of the Church of England and the church that represents Jesus Christ, somebody did something that mean and manipulative and hurtful just because they didn't agree with somebody? It sounds unthinkable, and yet, if you've been around church very long at all, you've probably seen similar behaviors. How does this happen? Why does this happen? I really can't say. But I know what the cure is. In the case of Christian community, or any community for that matter, wise leadership is always needed in order to keep the peace. It's part of the very basics of society. Wherever there is a community, sooner or later there has to be government. Now, government seems like a dirty word these days when we think of it in a global sense or even in our national sense, but just look at it from a sociological standpoint for just a minute. There has to be government wherever there's community because it's how we function. It's how we agree about certain foundational expectations. If, if everybody's doing one job, then a whole lot of other jobs are being neglected. So someone has to say, well, you need to do this, and you need to do this, and you need to do that. And in the same way, if everybody's in community, then there are going to be people whose moral uh, drives are less corrupt than others, shall we say, and there are going to be those who are more likely to do harm. And so leadership requires us in a loving but disciplined way to create an expectation that is for a greater good, for the peace of the community. And that means that in a community, even a Christian community like a local church, there has to be a willingness to confront and discipline evil when it happens. When harm happens, it has to be confronted. It has to be courageously kept at bay. We have to say to those who inflict harm on others, this must cease and it must cease now. In the same way, we are guilty of harm if we don't. The truth is, is in a leadership role, and really all of us are leaders, even if the only place we're a leader is in our own home. If we stand by and observe harm and do nothing about it, we're guilty of doing harm too. This is very Wesleyan, this is very scriptural, 
It comes right down to the fact that whatever we do or neglect to do for the least of our brothers and sisters, we have effectively done to Jesus our Lord and Savior. And so we are confronted with the reality of harm and our responsibility to do something about it. Now, having said that, I'd like to point out that if you were a physician, for example, and you find yourself having to help someone who has been gravely injured, let's say there's a broken limb that may have been inflicted by harm, it may have been an accident, but either way, this physician is confronted with the reality that they must set this bone, which is probably going to cause pain. And so we have to understand that there's a difference between pain and harm. Harm is a deliberate or open acceptance of our ignorance that leads to the injury of persons and things. But pain is the result of many things. And so the physician who sets the broken limb will find themselves perhaps having to straighten that limb. And as, as a former emergency medical technician, I can tell you that it causes a great deal of pain to straighten a broken limb but as soon as you straighten it and you take the pressure off of the broken places, the pain is almost instantaneously gone. And so you inflict pain in order to relieve suffering and harm. And the moral dilemma of doing no harm in the case of the physician is an informed decision. It means that this person has been trained and has carefully studied under the eldership of those who have come before and have practiced for many, many years. And with the wisdom of the ages, as well as the wisdom of their own colleagues in consultation, the physician can make a decision to not do harm, even if it does require a little bit of pain and suffering. And as local church leaders and as individual Christians, we can in the same way draw upon the knowledge of the ages and also consult with other wise Christians in order to make decisions to do no harm but possibly create pain and discomfort. So this challenge to do no harm is a difficult one, much harder than you thought it was when I started, I bet. Because it means that we are a group committed to peace, committed to the second rule, which is to do good. It's a deliberate decision to do no harm and to choose to do good. But in both practices, there will probably be pain. The scriptures talk of this problem of doing no harm in hundreds of places. Here are just a few examples. Psalm 14 verses 1 to 3 says, Set a guard over my mouth, O Lord. Keep watch over the door of my lips. How many of you need to put that one on your refrigerator as well as a few other places? Proverbs 13 3 says, Those who guard their mouths preserve their lives. Those who open wide their lips come to ruin. Think before you speak. How often would that save us a great deal of problem and troubles? Colossians 4, 6, Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer everyone. I love that. Seasoned with salt. In other words, if you will think before you speak, 
it's like adding seasoning to whatever you're about to say. It means that you'll think about what you mean to say and give due consideration to the terms you use. I heard Paul quote me last week when he said to you, the Pastor Dan thinks words are important. You bet I do. That's why I said, why don't we call it friendship and learning instead of Sunday school and Christian education? I'm digressing here, but it's a great way to make a point, I hope. When you're new to a Christian community and you come from that world where church is irrelevant and boring and probably built on something that isn't true, isn't it more appealing to be invited to an opportunity for friendship and learning than to Sunday school and Christian indoctrination? Because that's what they hear, you know. Words matter. And if we'll take time before we use them, we'll season them appropriately so that they're more palatable. That's really important. Luke chapter 14 Jesus says, for which of you intending to build a tower does not first sit down and estimate the cost to see whether he has enough to complete it? So therefore, none of you can become my disciple if you do not give up all your possessions. So what's he saying? Think about the cost of what you're about to say or do. Think about what it really is about. More often than not, the pain that I've witnessed in church is usually about highly personal things that aren't particularly relevant to the larger scheme of things. It doesn't mean your personal discomfort and pain are irrelevant. It just means that they are probably better handled with a deep consideration for the cost of a misguided attempt to get your needs met. Paul and I can both tell you from our preaching backgrounds that there are plenty of times when we preach when there should be a mirror in the front pew. This is one of those times. It's something we all have to live by. I just have the privilege and the terrible responsibility of sharing these things with you. Peter says, cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. So if you're struggling with something deeply personal and you'd like to tell the whole world about it and you'd like to straighten that bunch out for the pain you assume they've created for you, then you might want to just give it to Jesus first and see how that goes. Could change everything. Can a blind person guide another blind person, Jesus says? Won't they both just fall into a pit? How often have you seen people with bitterness in their soul find other bitter people and sit there and just have a bitter pity party? Say that five times fast. If you're unhappy, don't seek out other unhappy people to console you. Especially when it's a social problem. I have to say that because I think there's great comfort in support groups for people who are all grieving, let's say, with the same kinds of losses. But, but if you're just ticked off about something at church or in some other part of your life, don't call other people who like to talk about everything they're ticked off about. You'll just get everybody worked up and none of you will accomplish anything. Rather, go find someone who has some wisdom and grace and say, I'm ticked off about something and I want to respond in an appropriate way. I'd like for some seasoning to enter into my words before I speak them. Can you help me? What a different kind of community it would be should we do those sorts of things. 
Jesus said in the same, uh, same example I just referenced that if you see that someone has a splinter in their eye, before you go trying to point out the splinter in their eye, you might want to notice the plank in your own eye. Jesus had a great sense of humor. Still does. And it's pretty obvious that sometimes we get so particular about other people's idiosyncrasies and other people's personalities that become very blind to our own. And so Jesus says, take a look at yourself. Take a hard look at yourself. Consider for a moment the cost of your behavior, not theirs. Consider for a moment what you can do to make the world a better place by doing no harm and doing all the good you can do. I have good news for you. You heard it in Paul's letter to the Galatians today. The fruit of the Spirit is joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Can I get an amen on that one? Self-control. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking and envying each other. Whew. Chew on that for a second. Talk about a guy who knew how to season his words. The good news is, is, with the power of the Holy Spirit that has changed your nature, with the power of the Holy Spirit that has given you new life in Christ, you are on the road to sanctification. You know what that means? It means that you're in the Spirit's oven and you're cooking and you're not done yet. Sanctification is a fancy word that means I'm a pretty good Christian today, at least better than I was yesterday, but not nearly as good as I hope to be tomorrow. And on and on it goes. Sanctification is this ever-changing of your nature into conformity with the nature of our Lord Jesus Christ. With that in mind, let's keep this need that we have in check by the power of the Holy Spirit. So if you are, like me, one who's given yourself over to the behaviors that lead to harm, all you need to do is take it to the Lord in prayer. If you have stood by passively while such things were happening around you, all you need to do is repent and take it to the Lord in prayer. If you're thinking, I sure hope the person next to me is getting this, you can repent and take it to the Lord in prayer. If you've lacked the courage to bear the pain needed for healing, take it to the Lord in prayer. If you've lacked the courage to oppose harm when you see it happening around you, perhaps because you're afraid you'll lose a friendship or uh, an important and influential friend or something like that, there's no more important or influential friend in your whole world than the Lord Jesus Christ. Risk everything else for the sake of that friendship. Start by taking it to the Lord in prayer. And that's what we're going to do. We're going to finish today with the prayer that's in your hymnal, but it's going to be on the screen. It's one of the prayers we use in preparation for receiving Holy Communion. It's the 
prayer for uh, confession. So join me in saying these words out loud. Merciful God, we confess that we have not loved you with our whole heart. We have failed to be an obedient church. We have not done your will. We have broken your law. We have rebelled against your love. We have not loved our neighbors, and we have not heard the cry of the needy. Forgive us, we pray. Free us for joyful obedience. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, amen. Hear the good news. Christ died for us while we were yet sinners. That proves God's love for, toward us. In the name of Jesus Christ, you are forgiven. Thank you. Glory to God. Amen.